0: Uh, I'm going to summarize what I'm about to say by reading something we just sung, okay? Um, One of the songs we sung was All I Have is Christ. The last verse in that song says, Now Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. O Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose and let my song forever be my only boast is you. I could just say that's the end because that's going to summarize everything that I have to say, but I'm not going to do that. So, um, If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31. And we're going to be looking at verses 31 through... (laughs) <laughs> um, if uh, some of what we're going to be talking about this morning is familiar to you, uh, good. Uh, this is not the first time I've preached this text here. Uh, and Perhaps we're in a better position for me to preach this text now than we were the last time I preached it. And that's because, if you've been attending or listening to the recordings after the fact, our Wednesday night discussion, we're on chapter 7 of the covenant, of God's covenant. And we've been really delving into what's known as covenant theology, and particularly what's known as 1689 federalism which is a particular understanding of covenant theology. And I will go ahead and just tell you the one that I take, one that I think is most consistent with our confession, and more importantly, more consistent with Scripture. Um, So this morning, though, that's a really broad topic, and we're going to talk about all of that, but our specific focus is going to be the new covenant in Christ's blood. Now, before we read the passage for exposition, I'd like to give a brief introduction to the book of Jeremiah, just so I can make sure that you have the proper context for the passage. The book of Jeremiah is a compilation of various works by Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, an Israelite priest who prophesied during the period leading to and culminating in the Babylonian captivity of the Jews. Something we're very familiar with because we've been in the minor prophets forever. (laughs) Um, Much of what we've heard in the minor prophets, it actually came to fruition in Jeremiah's life. And we see that in his book. Uh, The main themes of the book are the prediction and the fruition of judgment upon the kingdom of Judah for breaking its covenant with God and the promise of restoration and salvation. It is in the latter context where God, through the prophet, announces His new covenant to come. With that, let's look at our passage. So Jeremiah chapter 31 for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this passage specifically and what it points us to. This is what we're saved into. I pray that You would bless us now as we try to look at what this passage is saying. I pray that you would get myself out of the way and um, that you would deliver your truth to your saints. They would be edified by it. And most of all, that your name would be glorified. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you can see, the main point of this passage is the announcement of God's new covenant. With Israel. As we move through the passage, I believe it's helpful, I believe it will be helpful to define a few key terms, because there was um, only, what, three verses, four verses there, but there was a lot that was said. First term is the term covenant. This is an extremely important concept to understand the whole of Scripture. In fact, the word covenant is synonymous with the word testament. What we tend to talk about uh, in the division of Scripture, that, or I should say the most common division of Scripture, we have the Old and New Testaments, right? But it would be correct to understand this as dividing the Scriptures into the Old and New Covenants. It's the same thing. We recited one definition of the term covenant in our catechism earlier. There it is defined as an agreement between two or more persons. Uh, I think common, maybe the most common conception of this term covenant in our context is going to be the marriage covenant. And in fact, it's even alluded to here as God refers to himself as a husband. So that's not a bad definition. But I do believe that further explanation is necessary because it could be assumed that the two parties are equals. The man and his wife are equals before God in the sense that they are both made in the image of God and therefore inherently have the dignity that comes to the Imago Dei, the image of God. Yes, there's a difference in function. But as far as our standing as human beings, we are equals. Not so in this type of covenant. It's definitely not the case. In his systematic theology, Louis Burkhoff explains this. He says, quote, All God's covenants are of the nature of sovereign dispositions imposed on man. God is absolutely sovereign in his dealings, with man and has the perfect right to lay down the conditions which the latter must meet in order to enjoy his favor. Berkhoff would go on to explain that God graciously condescended to come down to the level of man and to honor him by dealing with him more or less on the footing of equality. He stipulates his demands and vouchsafes his promises, and man assumes the duties thus imposed upon him voluntarily and thus inherits the blessings so that's a mouthful let me just summarize we're not equal to God God is above us but God in his love and his grace has condescended to meet us as if it were on equal footing to make gracious promises to covenant with us and this is how we relate to him He relates to man by way of covenant. Now that might take various forms and we'll get into that in a moment, but every covenant is a condescension on God's part because we're nothing but dust. But dust that's made in the image of God. So with this in mind, we will adopt the definition of the term covenant that is offered by Wayne Grudem. Grudem says that a covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. I'm going to repeat that for the note takers because that was also a mouthful, but every part of it was important. Okay, a covenant is an unchangeable, covenants don't change. Once they're covenanted, once they're made, they're unchangeable in God's economy. Divinely imposed. Again, we're not equal to God. God imposes His covenantal arrangements on man. Okay? God sets the terms as it were. Legal agreement. There is a law to a covenant. Okay? is not, a, put it this way, a light oath to take. I promise I won't do it again. That's what I hear often from my oldest child. I, if you'll give me another chance, I promise I won't do it again. And I know it's, he might mean it, but it's not true. He, he will do it again. <laughs> God doesn't do that way. If God enters into one of these agreements, it is legally binding On him and us. Although, we'll go back to what we just said. It's divinely imposed. So he is doing this himself, whereas it's imposed upon us. And it is divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. Okay? Again, God determines how we relate to him. We don't determine how God relates to us. He's the one condescending to come down to us. Alright. Hopefully the note takers got that down. If not, get with me after church. <laughs> there are uh, various covenants in Scripture. Um, but the main ones that we recognize are these. And we're going over these in more detail on Wednesday. So I'm not going to go into detail today, but I'm just going to try to give you the general thrust of these. The first one is the covenant of creation, wherein Adam was constituted the federal, or the covenant head, for all of his posterity. So according to the flesh, we are born into Adam's (coughs) covenant as Adam's children. Okay? He was charged with keeping the law of creation, which is the moral law, as summarized in the Ten Commandments, and the special ordinance that he would not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there was the law of creation, which is still in force today, and there was a special ordinance along with that in that covenant. Should he have kept the covenant... He would have attained eternal life for himself and his posterity. He would have earned salvation by works had he done that. But we know he didn't. Adam sinned, and thereby he brought the curses of the covenant upon himself and his posterity. This is why man is now born a sinner and into a world of sin and suffering and death. Our covenant head, Adam, failed. We're not off the hook. We did too. Then there's the Noahic covenant in which God renews the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply and take dominion over the earth. And he, through this covenant, ensures the preservation of the world for the fulfillment of of the promise of the coming of the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent. After Adam sinned, almost immediately, God made a gracious promise of salvation through a seed to come. I think I've told you guys this before, but I'll share it again now. I think it's really cool that the very first time we see the promise of the Gospel in the Scriptures, God is talking the devil who will be destroyed by it. That promise was made in a conversation where God was putting curses upon the serpent. I think that's pretty awesome. Then there's the covenant with Abraham in which God promised, again, a seed. And he also promised the land of Canaan. And... We have belabored at this point in our lessons on Wednesday that there are two covenants present in Abraham. There's the promise of the covenant of grace that would come through the promised seed. And there was the physical covenant of circumcision. I'm not going to get too much further into that right now and I will encourage you to go listen to the recordings on sermon audio if you want to because we did. Um, But for now, the covenant with Abraham was followed by the Mosaic Covenant or the Sinaitic Covenant, however you want to define it, um, which gave the nation of Israel a legal code. And then this was followed by the Davidic Covenant, which promised that, again, a descendant, a seed of David, would rule over the covenant people forever. We saw where that promise was repeated of the prophet Ezekiel in our Old Testament reading this morning. Baptist scholar Sam Renahan states, quote, The Old Covenant includes the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants. Moses controls Abraham and David. The Mosaic Covenant is the most prominent covenant in the Old Testament because it controls whether you enjoy Abraham's covenant and it stands over the Davidic kings who must copy and keep the law. So often in Scripture, we will see the Old Covenant specifically refers to the Mosaic Covenant. Other times, I think you roll them in together, depending on the context. This new covenant announced by Jeremiah is presented in contrast to the Old. It is expressly said to be not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. In this passage the old covenant is like I said specifically identified as the Mosaic covenant as this was the one that was made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt it is plain to see the reason a new covenant was needed especially given the context in which Jeremiah was writing simply stated Israel broke the old covenant and received its curses In fact, the existence of a new covenant necessitates a defect in the old. Scripture says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. If salvation could have come through the old covenant, there wouldn't be a need for a new covenant. One of the major defects of the old covenant was that it could be and it was broken by Israel. The Old Testament is in large order the history of God's faithfulness to His unfaithful covenant people. From the first generation with whom the Old Covenant was made to the generation that crucified our Lord, it can be seen time and again that God was faithful to His committed legal agreement and Israel was not. Thus the Old Covenant and those unfaithful to it were to be finally cast off and I'll direct you to Galatians 4 verses 21 through 31 that's just been our primary text for Wednesday in our discussion um, you can see that language <coughs> actually comes from that passage I'm not going to read it right now but Galatians 4 21 through 31 if you want to go read it later since this was one of the major defects of the old covenant which was corrected in the new Is necessarily the case that the New Covenant is not breakable. Otherwise, the two covenants would be the same, but the text expressly states that the New Covenant is not like the old. If this were not enough, the text goes on to state that all of them will know me, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Here we see that it is inherent to the New Covenant that all its members know the lord. And when you read the uh, that particular aspect of the relationship knowing the lord, think of it in terms of this. Scripture earlier says Adam knew his wife and she conceived. The idea is that of an intimate knowledge. It's not just, well, I you know, I read it in a textbook or read it in the Bible and I know these things intellectually. No, this is a relationship. This is I know the Lord. I belong to the Lord. He is my God. I love the Lord. That's the kind of knowing we're talking about here. Um, Not only that, though, all members of the new covenant are forgiven with their sins, past, present, and future no more remembered against them. The next key term which must be defined (coughs) is what is meant in the passage by God's law. Now Lord willing unless I'm providentially hindered which could happen, I don't know, but unless I'm providentially hindered, it's my intention to kind of talk about the proper use of God's law in more detail next week. But now but the reference here is to the moral law as summed up in the Ten Commandments and then further summed up in the two greatest commandments by Christ in Matthew 22 37 through 39 we read that Jesus said you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind this is the great and first commandment this is also a a summation of the first table of the Ten Commandments First 4 of the 10 are specifically our relation to God, our duty to God. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The second table of the law, commandments 5 through 10, specifically deal with how we are <coughs> to relate, our duty of how we are to relate to fellow image-bearers of God. So question. Why was the Old Covenant broken? I think we can clearly see that it was broken. Why was the Old Covenant broken? It was because its law was written on external tablets of stone instead of the internal tablets of human hearts. In other words, the Old Covenant told men what they ought to do but it did not empower them to actually do it. It is in this sense the Apostle Paul says that as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse and no one is justified by the law. God's law in the Old Covenant was external and far from the seat of the affections of the Old Covenant people as a whole. We kind of saw that in Sunday school this morning. We talked about The traditions of men supplanting the law of God. And this was one of the primary offenses of the Pharisees in particular. They wanted to bind the conscience of God's people by their own traditions and thereby supplant the law of God as revealed in the Scriptures. And Jesus wasn't having it. And in fact, He told them that that's what they were doing. You overturn the law of God by your traditions. Now, in contrast, God says of the law in the new covenant, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. That is, the law in the new covenant is placed by God at the seat of its members' affections. Certainly, New Covenant members are not justified by keeping the law. But they are enabled to keep the law because they are regenerated, justified, and adopted as God's children. I can't remember who it was. I heard once make this point, but it's, it's a spot-on point. In the Old Covenant, the law-keeping is the means to attaining the covenant blessings. Do this and live, basically. Okay, But in the New Covenant, law-keeping is one of the covenant blessings that's obtained for us by Jesus. So instead of do this and live, it is you live, so do this. Bruce Ware comments on the distinctive strength of the New Covenant by stating this, quote, All New Covenant participants will be covenant keepers, will know and embrace the law intrinsically, and will know the Lord and be His spiritual people, quote. Another key term which needs to be defined is Israel. We talked about this last Wednesday. Unfortunately, that conversation was not reported, so you'll just have to hear me repeat it now. Um, (laughs) The term Israel also encompasses the other group that's mentioned in this passage, Judah, as seen in verse 33, where both groups are placed under the umbrella term Israel. And we also read in the passage in Ezekiel, they're put together, right? The two sticks put together as one stick. Okay, so when I say Israel, both of those... I'm referring to both of those, okay? There is a sense in which the meaning is obvious. Israel is simply the covenant people of God. I mean, he made the old covenant with Israel, he's making the new covenant with Israel. They're the covenant people of God. The passage shows exactly that. Israel had an old covenant, Israel would receive a new covenant. Behold, the days are coming. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the one I made with their fathers. While this meaning is correct as far as it goes, the New Testament sheds more light for us to better understand what is meant by the prophet. It always has been the case that Israel included ethnic Jews, physical descendants of Abraham. But in Romans 9, Verses 6 through 8, we read this. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. The Apostle says in Galatians 3.7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. <clears throat> Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle informs us that Gentile believers have been grafted in among them and become partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree. And elsewhere, and I'm actually going to read this passage if you want to turn there. Elsewhere in Ephesians 2.11-22, He explains in greater detail. Let me get there and I will read that. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. By saying that, he is implying that the Jews implicitly were not separated from Christ. They were, they are the commonwealth of Israel, so obviously they're not separated from that. And that the covenants of promise were given to them. But now, in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Okay, the passage we read in Ezekiel is talking about something in particular, but let's take um, the visual picture and now apply it here. Jew, Gentile, sticks come together. to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. See, both needed salvation in Christ. Okay, salvation is the same way throughout for the Jew and for the Gentile. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So you're citizens of the commonwealth of Israel, and even better, your sons of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's a temple. So clearly, Gentile believers are included in the commonwealth of Israel following Christ's death on our behalf. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. The apostle says again that he is a Jew who is one inwardly. That is, he who has had circumcision of the heart, not circumcision of the flesh. Clearly, the New Covenant conception of Israel includes all those who savingly believe in Jesus Christ without reference to physical descent or ethnicity. Stated another way, and I mentioned this Wednesday, eschatological Israel, that means end times Israel, The final Israel, eschatological Israel, with whom the new covenant is made is none other than the New Testament church bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. In that sense, we are Israel. The final key term which needs to be defined is the term new covenant. We've discussed the term covenant, but now what specifically is this new covenant? On the night before our Lord was crucified, He instituted one of the two ordinances of the church. He broke bread and distributed it to the disciples, saying that it was His body given for His people. And then He took the cup of wine and He said this, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He used the exact same term that Jeremiah did. In doing that, he was saying, you know, Jeremiah said this over here. This is what that was. With these words, signs, and his following propitiatory sacrifice that they point to, Jesus inaugurated the new covenant that was mentioned by Jeremiah So the new covenant is the one which is made in Christ's blood. That's the new covenant. Taking all this into consideration, here is yet another wordy definition for you. You may just have to get with me afterward if you're taking notes on this one. I'm not going to repeat this one. Uh, The new covenant is the unbreakable covenant which God has established with eschatological Israel whereby He guarantees first the reception of better promises by guaranteeing their redemption through the putting forward of the perfect once for all sacrifice for the forgiveness of their sins by the perfect mediator, Jesus Christ. And second, He guarantees their sanctification and glorification by writing His law upon their hearts. I told you that was a mouthful. But if I leave any of that out, it's inadequate. So that's why I had to be a mouthful. So we now turn to the practical conclusions from all that we've discussed. We see in Jeremiah's announcement of the New Covenant the affirmation of what is known as the doctrines of grace. How so? It's clearly seen in the passage that God unilaterally Institutes his saving covenant with his people based on nothing within them. For this reason, the new covenant is also properly called the covenant of grace. Because it is fully of grace. And yes, this is the same covenant of grace that was given to Adam and Eve in the form of a promise After they had sinned. And it is the same covenant of grace that was given to Abraham in the form of a promise. And it is the same covenant of grace given to Moses and then to David in the form of a promise and all the Old Testament covenant people. But it wasn't formally covenanted until the New Covenant. Remember, we just read in Ephesians that it was the Commonwealth of Israel that the covenants of promise were given. The promise was the seed, his kingdom, and his perfect, salvific covenant that was future for them, but is now present for us. In Jeremiah's announcement of the new covenant, it is seen that men are radically corrupted since the fall in the Garden of Eden. We are corrupted at the very seat of our affections, apart from God's gracious act of regeneration. That is why the Old Covenant was one which Israel broke. The law was external to the seed of their affections. It was written on tablets of stone. So while they may have had it in their hands and they may have had it in their heads, they did not have it in their hearts. Their hearts were unregenerate and dead in sin. And the law did nothing but condemn them. The passage also shows that God's choice to enter into covenant with a certain people is his own divine prerogative. He chooses a certain people with whom he enters into covenant and does not enter into covenant with anyone else. And this is not a general his people. This is Jonathan. This is Ken. This is Michael, or whoever I can point to in here. This is individuals that can uh, constitute a people. This is individual. These individuals corporately form eschatological Israel. He does this according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace and nothing within the covenant people themselves. After all, I mean, consider, many of the new covenant people are the exact same people who broke the former covenant. Think about that first Pentecost after Christ had ascended. The 3,000 that it says were saved that day. Those were Jews. Jews. Those were Old Covenant people. Many of those were the very people that crucified Jesus. (laughs) We, they, have nothing but the demerits of our sin to offer. And all of us rightly can be said to be breakers of the covenant of creation. Even if we didn't break the old covenant, we have broken Adam's covenant. Because we've all sinned ourselves. We also see that the forgiveness of sins is exclusively given to the new covenant people of God. God does not forgive the iniquity of people outside of His new covenant of grace. If you are outside of that covenant, you continue in your sins, and the curse of God is upon you. It is for this specific people, and this specific people alone, for whom Christ intends and actually does make atonement. Jesus did not die for a general, faceless, nameless people. He died for His sheep. All those of whom God chooses to enter into covenant are certainly brought into covenant with him. There are no members of eschatological Israel who ultimately refuse to enter into the covenant. This does not mean that they are dragged into the covenant against their wills, kicking and screaming, as the caricature often goes. Rather, it means they experience the new birth by the Holy Spirit. God puts His law into their hearts, causing them to be willing to believe. It is our joy to believe and obey when we've experienced the new birth and we have been brought into the covenant people of God, the sheepfold of God. As the prophet Ezekiel states, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you, God is the one causing here, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Finally, it is clearly saying that God preserves all His covenant, His new covenant people to the end. He certainly elects and justifies and sanctifies and finally glorifies them all. He says, They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. I like that. Your status isn't important as far as whether you're great or small. Your status is important as to whether you know the Lord. And how is it that all the covenant people know Him? Well, the next part of that verse says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. The sin that separates us from God is eliminated. God's new covenant people are eternally forgiven people because God has put forward a once for all sacrifice to atone for our sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is why we hold to the idea that once you're saved, you're always saved. God preserves his covenant people to the end. Another conclusion to be drawn from the church's New Covenant uh, founding is the thing that makes us Baptist. Namely, that only professing believers are to be baptized. Now, you might be looking at me going, what? That doesn't say anything about baptism? Stay with me for a second. Based on this passage, we must deny the biblical validity of infant or, if you prefer, household baptism. Many pedo-baptists, reformed pedo-baptists, I should say, root their understanding of the church in the Old Testament. Again, Burkhoff, who held to this view, presents this understanding when he says, quote, up to the time of Abraham there was no formal establishment the covenant of grace. The establishment of the covenant with Abraham marked the beginning of the institutional church. End quote. And he continues, this covenant, that is the Abrahamic covenant, is still in force. It is essentially identical with the new covenant of the present dispensation. Now, one of the things that I have repeated over and over again on Wednesdays, if you get the Abrahamic covenant wrong, you get the rest of it wrong. Right here's why. Because what I just quoted from Burkhoff, and I man I'm very much a Burkhoff guy, okay? I like Louis Burkhoff's writings. I often refer to Louis Burkhoff's writings, but I think Louis Burkhoff got this wrong. Very, very, very wrong. The Abrahamic covenant was made with Abraham and his offspring. Yes. In Genesis 17.10, God says to Abraham, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So the argument being pushed by Burkoff and most of our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, and they are brothers and sisters This is an in-house disagreement. Um, But the argument goes that since the children of believers received this uh, covenant sign of faith in the Abrahamic covenant, that'd be circumcision. And the Abrahamic covenant is essentially identical to the new covenant. Therefore, the children of believers should receive the covenant sign of faith in the new covenant, that is, baptism. See the logic? It is a logical argument. The problem is not a biblical argument. The sign is received in respect to the faith and covenant standing of the child's parents, just as Abraham's offspring would have been circumcised on the basis of his faith. The result is that both the Abrahamic and the new covenants are to be mixed covenants capable of being broken if the children do not receive the reality to which the sign points at some future time. So you baptize your children on the basis of your faith, and if your children later on do not come to that faith to which the baptism points, that makes them new covenant breakers. And therefore we have a mixed community just like we did in the old covenant, and the new covenant is a breakable covenant in that line of thinking. However, we've already seen from this passage the new covenant is not like the old, because all New Covenant members know the Lord from the least of them to the greatest of them. Dr. Sam Waldron states, the specified difference is that the people of God in the New Covenant will not break the covenant as Israel did. And also that all the New Covenant people of God will know the Lord while it may be a logical argument, does not square with Scripture. Now, it may be objected at this point that the covenant being compared to the new in Jeremiah 31 31 through 34 is the Mosaic and not the Abrahamic covenant. I've already said that. That's true. It's not the Abrahamic covenant. It's the Mosaic covenant. However, this objection is easily dispensed by considering that The same weakness being pointed out in the Mosaic Covenant is also true of the Abrahamic Covenant of circumcision. Namely, that not all members of that covenant knew the Lord, and consequently some broke it. Ishmael and Esau were part of the Abrahamic Covenant of circumcision just as much as Isaac and Jacob were. Since all members of the New Covenant are believers who know the Lord, it stands to reason that then only believers, as the exclusive participants in the covenant, should receive the signs of the covenant, and in this case, that being baptism. Add to this that there are no explicit commands or examples of anyone but professing believers being baptized in the New Testament. Now, we do see a false professor being baptized. But there is no recognition in that passage that he was rightly (coughs) a member of the covenant. In fact, what Scripture says is they went out from us because they were not of us. They may have been physically present, but they were not in Christ's covenant. Similarly, the Abrahamic covenant, like the old covenant, is fulfilled in the new covenant. Abraham's covenant pointed forward. So if we want to say that it is still binding, I would say, yeah, in the sense that it is fulfilled in Christ. And Christ's covenant is eternally binding and standing. This is clearly seen in Galatians 3. Now, I'm not going to I know I've already held you for a while. I'm not going to flip over there and read the entire chapter, but I definitely encourage you to do so and just see how uh, Abraham and Christ and their respective covenants relate. That passage is very, very clear to me, even though some some brothers try to use that passage to argue their point as well. But... um, I'll just invite you and encourage you to read it. But the context of that passage is that Paul is arguing against the claims of the Judaizers that believers must receive the sign of the covenant of circumcision to enter the new covenant and receive its blessings. So covenant mixing. Um, there it is stated that the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. It does not say, and to seeds... As, in, as referring to many but rather to one and to your seed that is Christ and then Paul goes on to say the promise by faith in Jesus Christ is given to those who believe the promise is given to those who believe and if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's descendants heirs according to the promise In other words, the heirs of the promises spoken to Abraham are Christ and all those joined to Christ by faith, implying that those who are not of faith are not the sons of Abraham in this sense, nor heirs of promises. Jesus is the fulfillment and ultimate seed to which the Abrahamic covenant pointed. Only his spiritual seed joined Christ to him by faith should receive the sign of his covenant or just stated simply only believers are in the new covenant and therefore only professing believers should receive the sign of the new covenant we don't baptize anybody on the basis of somebody else's faith there's no biblical warrant for that at all a third conclusion is the denial of what I'm going to call the free grace movement, or what is historically known as antinomianism. And that big word etymologically breaks down to anti, against, nomian, the law. So against the law, specifically the law of God. This is the doctrine that once a person enters the new covenant of God's free grace, or rather, i sure rather say enters by God's free grace, he is free from the law in all respects. He can live as he wishes without regard for his sins because divine justice has been satisfied. Remember, the New Covenant members have their sins, past, present, and future forgiven, right? So what do I need this law for? This is this is old news, right? We're, we're, we're not under law, we're under grace, right? So who cares how I live my life? I'm saved by grace. And if I I sin, then I mean that's so much more to Christ because look at all the other stuff he's forgiven me of, right? That's kind of the idea. And again, there is a a scriptural basis upon which the believer can say that he's free from the law in a sense. Uh, The believer is free from the law as a covenant for life which simply means we don't keep the law to earn our salvation. So in that sense, yeah, we are. We're free from the law. Yes, amen, we are. However, the believer is still under the law as a rule of obedience. Puritan writer Samuel Bolton rightly asserted, For believers, the law is abrogated in respect of its power to justify or condemn. But... It remains full of force to direct us in our lives. It condemns sin and the faithful, though it cannot condemn the faithful for sin. So, we don't keep the law to be saved and go to heaven. But we do keep the law because we're saved, because we're going to heaven. In the New Covenant, God writes His law in the hearts of its members. This means that contrary to us being free from the law, we are free to live in obedience to the law. That's what freedom in Christ is. We're free from sin. Now we're free to obey. We're free to do what we were made for. We're to be the image of God. In fact, this is One of the primary differences between the old and new covenants. We've already mentioned this, but in the old man must keep the law as the condition for the reception of the covenant blessings, primarily the land of Israel or Palestine, whatever you want to call it. And the new covenant of grace, the ability to keep the law is one of the blessings that is received by grace. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. How do we know what good works are? They're in God's law. The keeping of God's law. That's what good works we were created in Christ Jesus for. God's law is now at the center of our affections. It is our delight to do this. It is our earnest desire to live in conformity to God's law and His ordinances and thereby please and commune with Him. It is the obedience of a son who longs to please his father, not the obedience of a slave who longs to earn his wages. Without such longings and desires, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, you should call your salvation into question. It's not that we keep the law perfectly. No, no. We're not perfected yet. No, But if there's not some sort of struggle with sin, there's not a desire to keep God's law, then there's a big problem. Scripture tells us to make our calling and our election sure. And one of the primary ways we do that is by looking at the fruit of regeneration in our lives. As I've heard one preacher put it, no fruit, no root. The Apostle Paul addresses the question in this way. Do we then overthrow the law through faith? By no means. On the contrary. We uphold the law. That was on the tail end of a a discussion which he was saying we are justified by faith alone. In Christ alone. Not by works of the law. And at the tail end of that, he anticipates the very first objection. Are you an antinomian there, Paul? Is the law of no effect now? Oh, God forbid. No, it's not what we're saying. This is how the law is established. Because apart from it, you can't keep it. You don't love it. Not really. No, because you're just doing it to prove yourself. No, by this faith, by this salvation, you are free to do this. For the right reason, because you love God, and if you love God, you therefore love God's law, because God's law is a reflection of God's character. Amen. So, to our uh, antinomian friends, I think we would have to we would have to ask them, "Do you love God?" I mean, it's really something that needs to be contemplated. This is a serious problem. You are sinning, and you don't care. Paul would also go on to say this in the same letter to the Romans. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Or the King James says, God forbid! How can we who died to sin still live in it? I've already mentioned to you the uh, verse in Ephesians 2.10. Believers are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And if that were not enough, our Lord Jesus himself plainly says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You certainly will keep my commandments. So, I'm not trying to do shock value or anything like that, but that is actually the appropriate question to bring to an antinomian. Do you love God? One, uh, uh, one objection, uh, which is offered by our pedo and our dispensational brethren alike, interestingly enough, because that's about as opposite as it gets, right? <laughs> but they offer this same objection For different reasons. Uh, And it's this that the new covenant that's announced by Jeremiah is still future, even now, or at least its consummation is still future. So, like some of the promises, maybe it's been kicked off, but maybe the fullness of these promises are not seen until Christ returns. Okay, some variation in there. Dispensationalists advance this idea to maintain their ecclesiology, which holds that the church and Israel are two distinctive peoples of God, and the two should never touch, ever. The claim here is that the new covenant in Jeremiah is made with Israel, not the church, and therefore it must still be future, because, you know, obviously that nation-state on the other side of the world is not a Christian nation. <clears throat> but we've already seen that this radical separation of Israel and the church is not grounded in Scripture. I read to you Ephesians 2. He broke down the wall of separation and he made the two one. The Gentiles, or I should say believing Gentiles, are now citizens of the commonwealth of Israel and fellow partakers in its blessings. Now some pedo advance the same theory because the contrary view destroys their own ecclesiology which says Israel and the church are exactly the same one for one match. So the dispensationalists we have radical discontinuity with our pedo our reformed pedo brethren, we have radical continuity. And again, we've already seen this, but this would mean the church is a mixed group of believers and unbelievers, just like Old Testament Israel was. This enables them to admit the children of believers to what they call the external administration of the covenant of grace through baptism on the basis of their parents' faith. So they make this distinction between the external administration and the internal administration. Um, what they need to do, what is consistent with the scripture, is they need to understand that the internal administration is the only administration. <laughs> um, there's no New Testament basis for this. Um, again, as we've already seen, the exclusive nature of the new covenant does not allow for a mixed covenant. Covenant. Because all know the Lord and have their sins forgiven. Nevertheless, it must be admitted the language used by Jeremiah is eschatological, meaning that it refers to the end times. They did get that much right. The new covenant is God's final covenant by which he saves his people. At the time of its announcement, it was still something that was yet to come. Right? So... When Jeremiah is writing, it is in the future. Right? It begins, Jeremiah begins, with the words, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant. The answer to this seeming conundrum is the historical development we see in the New Testament Scriptures. Okay? Okay. The author of Hebrews explicitly states the realization of the new covenant is now present. He shows the sacrifice of the covenant to be Christ's atoning death. He shows the high priest who offered the sacrifice to be Christ himself by way of directly applying Jeremiah 31 31 through 34 to the new covenant in Christ's blood. And I'm actually going to flip over and read that real quick. Hebrews chapter (coughs) 8. Picking up in verse 6 and then just reading through the end of the chapter. It says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says... What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish. So he directly, the author of Hebrews, directly applies this passage and says, no, this is the new covenant in Christ's blood. He explicitly says it there. So there's no question about this. We have the New Testament interpretation of this Old Testament passage. We have infallible interpretation of this passage. So we don't have to wonder. It's right there. In chapter 10, still in Hebrews, in chapter 10, he again directly applies the new covenant to that made between Jesus Christ and the church when he says this. This is chapter 10, verses 11 through 22. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God Again, he's quoting this passage and directly applying it to Christ's covenant. He says it's a present reality. The biblical evidence is clear that while the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, is eschatological, it has been realized in the present as it is established between God and, here it is, eschatological Israel. The church all its members are said to have God's law upon the heart and the forgiveness of sins. These benefits and the confidence by which we enter the holy place come exclusively from the blood of Jesus, which he describes as the blood of the covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. These truths should result in the worship of God's new covenant people. They should cause us to love God's law because it's now written on our hearts. And these truths should give us confidence that our sins truly are forgiven through the sacrifice offered by our great mediator, the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ so the words everybody's been waiting for for the last 30 minutes I want to close this morning (laughs) with an invitation if you are here or maybe maybe somebody would be listening to this later on I guess either way if you've never if you've never entered into a saving and covenantal relationship the triune God of Scripture. You can. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. That is, all those who work to earn a righteous standing before God. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you don't know him, take that yoke. Come to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word again. And thank you for the new covenant. Thank you for the salvation we have in it. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for the law written on the heart. Most of all, thank you for the Lord of the covenant. Thank you for our great mediator, our prophet, priest, and our king, our savior. Thank you that by your covenant, by our covenant head, you have brought us from being your enemies, your enemies to be destroyed and trampled underfoot to now being in the status of sons and daughters of the living God and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. Thank you. I pray that you would help us to obediently carry this good news, this best news. a lost world that needs it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.